Well, if you have your Bibles today, I want to invite your tent again to turn back to Proverbs chapter 11, and uh, we'll be picking it up in verse uh, 15. Uh, and we're going to continue on today to work through uh, this chapter. This chapter has been a really good one for uh, just getting a lot of everyday good practical principles to, to live our lives by, as the whole book of Proverbs is, as you'll see as we continue to go through it. You'll remember when we started chapter 11, uh, we took a long time with verse 1. Verse 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. We probably took five or six weeks, uh, and we covered all the major areas in the Bible. We covered all the major areas in life and uh, talked about the ministry, talked about our own church here, talked about our walk with God, talked about relationships that we get ourselves into. And uh, we talked about all of those things and how to, how to get a good balance in them in our lives and how important that, that really is. Then from verse 2 on, once we finish that, we have since been looking at each verse uh, and seeing it as it's laid out in a positive and a negative way. And I've told you that uh, all life falls around uh, positive things and negative things. So when the book of Proverbs, uh, that is the book on the issues of life, begins to go through them, follows the same course that life follows, and it's based on uh, the negative and the positive uh, in each verse. And today we'll pick it up where we left off last week in verse 15 and come down through verse 18. And yet again, we'll add, uh, if you're keeping a catalog on these, which I hope you are, um, you'll get more principles today on the issues of life, and there's some really good lessons uh, in these verses today. Now, I want to begin reading here in Proverbs chapter 11, and it says, I'm going to start at verse 14. It says, Where no counsel is, the people fall, but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it, and he that hateth surety is sure. A gracious woman retaineth honor, and strong men retain riches. The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. The wicked worketh a deceitful work, but to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you today for the Lord Jesus. We ask you to give us today all that we need. Give us the insight and the wisdom into this great passage to be able to take these verse by verse and to give these good people uh, what you have for them today. We love you. We thank you for all you do for us, for our church, for the Word of God you provided for us. And uh, we just ask you now in Jesus' name to bless us and for his sake. Amen. Now, I, uh, I, I included verse 14 when I read it because I want you to see how that getting God's counsel on everything really is the real key uh, in, in what follows here. And remember last week that I told you that when it said, where no counsel is, the people fall, it's not talking about, you know, the physical counselors of life. Though, obviously, somebody who believes the Bible, a pastor who uses the Bible and understands the Bible, and Christians who follow the same suit, they can be of great value to you in helping you work through issues. That's, we take that for granted. But when it's talking about counselors, fundamentally, everything goes back to the Word of God. God gave us 66 counselors, 66 books. And in each one of them, you find everything that we need for life, everything that we need for every issue that we'll find in life. And so he starts in verse 15, and he says this, He that is surety for a stranger shall smart for it, and he that hateth suretyship is sure. Now that is good counsel right there. We've talked about that before. Uh, we have ran across this uh, principle when we were way back in chapter 6 months ago. And chapter 6, verse 1 and 2 says, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou strikest thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. And putting it into a context, we understand that, uh, uh, you know, you have to be careful who you lend yourself to as far as being responsible for uh, their financial situations. Doctrinally, this is dealing here with the Jew in the tribulation period, and he's told to be careful who he trusts, careful who he talks to, careful who he makes an allegiance with, an alliance with, uh, because there are people in the tribulation that are deceiving people and then turning them over to the Antichrist. And for uh, reference on that will be Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 10. So doctrinally, 
it's a tribulation context to the Jew. But from a practical standpoint, it's simply saying, don't go out on a limb for somebody in any situation um, because if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, then you're going to get stuck with the burden and you're going to have to pick up what they didn't if you've, if you've uh, made sure for their debt or made sure for their circumstances. And um, he, that's why he says, unless you're really sure, the word surety, meaning very sure, know the person that you're standing up for. You see this all the time when people go into business together. Many times the idea of a great business overshadows the person you're going to business with. And it's only after you get into that that you see you probably made a bad choice and the guy bails out and you get stuck with it or many, many times where somebody has spent all the money and then leaves you with the debt. I had a friend of mine one time that uh, uh, had a, a plumbing supply place and he was a good kid and he had a partner in the deal and uh, when they all they had to close the doors and when they did, the partner had it all rearranged where he got everything out of it and left the guy with nothing. In fact, he had to go bankrupt. You find it where it's talking about signing a contract with somebody to do some work or to do this or any kind of thing that you find that you put yourself in that you're going to stand up for somebody. A lot of times uh, people will co-sign for somebody who want to buy a car or want to get an apartment and they don't, they have to have somebody co-sign. So they, without really knowing the person, because <laughs> I don't know how many times I've heard it say, well, he was, said he was a Christian or she said she was a Christian. I thought I should, it was okay. Man, that means nothing. I mean, it means absolutely nothing today. And they get stuck with it. And, uh, you know, you share an apartment with somebody and or you get, uh, you know, and they're going to split the, down the middle and you find out pretty much you get left with the whole thing and they go someplace else. And you see it in working with people, with issues and in general and things that you deal with. Uh, you know, my rule is, and I told you this when we come through chapter 6, my rule is, you know what, don't do it for somebody if you can't, handle the expense if you get left with it because you know you should go in with that mindset that there's I'm going to do this because I want to help the person but at the same time I'm fully prepared that it ain't going to hurt me if that person leaves me hanging I mean it's your own choice and you have to make those kind of decisions you know as a pastor and really as any Christian uh, you know we want to help somebody who are who, who we see as needing help and that and that's a good thing our job, our job is to help people. Uh, but even in that, you have to have a, a good balance and you have to follow the principles to keep from getting burned. And, um, and we all have been burned at some point in time. You know, I, I've, I've been burned over the years many times uh, in the ministry. And every time I do or I look back at it, I take full responsibility for it. I know the principles better than probably most people and, and uh, I, I know better. But I, at the same time, you know, um, anybody can get fooled. Uh, I, there's probably been people that I let come back to church that caused a lot of problems that I probably shouldn't have over the years. I take responsibility for that. You know, I, I, from my position sometimes, you have to roll the dice on people. And uh, people sitting out here this morning, I'll be very honest with you, some of you, I rolled the dice on you. And you came out pretty good. You did okay. But sometimes they do and sometimes they don't, you know. A real Bible-based ministry, a lot of it is putting yourself out there on a limb. I always tell people, the best position to find yourself in as a Christian is way out on a limb, looking back at the tree, seeing God standing there on a limb with a hacksaw in his hand and a smile on his face. That is the best position to be in. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, and as I say, I alone and I, I take responsibility for those things when I do it. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily blame the person. Uh, I Sometimes you have to err on the side of, of, of doing good, and you pay the price for it. Uh, but whenever I get burned or you get burned, uh, it'll always be, uh, in my mind anyhow, that I understand I knew what the principle was. I took a chance on this person, and I got burned. You know, sometimes... Sometimes a good conscience toward God that you know you did the right thing even when you got burned um, is, is still the right thing, the way to handle it. That peace in your heart that no matter what happens, you can always look back and say, yeah, but I did the right thing. I gave that person three or four chances or two chances or whatever it was. I mean, there comes a point to it. I mean, uh, you know, you don't, uh, you don't have stupid written on the front of your forehead, you know. You, you realize that you try to help people, but there comes a time when you can't go any farther with it. 
And uh, that's a, you know, and, and that's just the way it has to be. But in all things, it says surety for somebody. The need to be uh, cautious, to be sure, uh, is really vital. And uh, some of you have taken a chance on somebody and given them a job. I, I've watched you do it. And that's a noble thing. I mean, I, I appreciate when I see that. I may not say something to you, but I've watched some of you give somebody a chance. When I thought to myself, oh, they probably aren't going to make it. But you know what? That was a noble thing to do. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. But I want to tell you this, and this is a true statement, so you want to listen to me. In every case, when your motive is right and you try to help somebody and somebody comes back and burns you, God will always protect you in it and you'll always come out better than you went in it. That's just the way it works. That's just the way it works. Now, there's key, two key words in this verse. And uh, I, I think there's valuable lessons in getting burned. I really do. Uh, and there's two key words here in this verse and they're very important. The first one is, he shall smart for it. Now, that's an old English phrase. We don't use it that way anymore. But it simply means that once you get burned, you should be smarter than you were before you got burned. You ought to learn some lessons from it. Uh, Our ability to experience pain is a good thing. Many times it will keep us from really hurting ourselves. A little child reaches up and you tell them, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Don't touch the stove, it's hot. They don't really understand it's hot till they get their finger burned. And that's a good lesson. Every time they reach up to think about that, they're going to remember the pain of the experience. And this is why when we go through things in life and we get into bad choices, God doesn't come down and just erase it and take it away. God expects us to learn from the bad mistakes that we've made in life. He wants that pain. Oh, Jacob, when he wrestled with God back there in Genesis, you know what? And he wanted it was his will over God's will, and God reached down and touched the hollow of his thigh, He limped for the rest of his life. And every time he limped, he remembered the time that he disobeyed God and the pain that it caused him. And that's just, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. The pain of a bad choice is always a good thing. Remember how it hurt when you disobeyed God. Uh, You know, the example of of parents and disciplining their children. Bible talks about uh, corporal punishment or spanking your child. A lot of parents today don't want to do that. A lot of parents today won't do that. But that's a vital part of training up your child. I'm not saying you just go out and do it because you had a bad day. You're going to take it out on the kid. But there's certain, sometimes maybe, but there's certain things, there are certain things that a child does that are a lot worse than other things that require a more severe penalty on it. And you got a strong-willed child. You got a child who hurts other children. You got a child who bites other kids all the time or hurts them or does destructive to them. Giving them a timeout is not going to solve that problem unless you're hanging them by their thumbs upside down. That's not going to work. There needs to be something that he associates with the next time I do that. Man, that really hurts. And that's the profit of going through something like that. Then the second key word is, he that hateth surety is sure. The 100% safest way to keep from getting into a situation like this is just don't do it. If there's any doubt, stay away from it. And this is a very good practical uh, lesson and a rule to follow in life. Now look at verse 16. Let's move on down through here. A, A gracious woman retaineth honor, and strong men retain riches. Now, the key word here is retain or retaineth. And in the context, this gracious woman will be uh, two ladies in the Bible. I told you the other night when we were in Bible study that there's two two books in the Bible that are written to women, only two. And uh, when you realize how the Bible lays itself out and you understand that in the Old Testament, God has a wife, Israel, and in the New Testament, Christ has a bride, the church, then you realize that there's two books written in the Bible that illustrate both of those. Esther is written about a woman in the Old Testament that represents the nation of Israel. Ruth is the book that represents the body of Christ. And so you see that. And uh, it's very important that you understand that a gracious woman uh, is, is, is talking about these two ladies. But in a practical sense, in an everyday application to you and to me, This woman will be, no question about it, the virtuous woman of Proverbs chapter 31 and uh, and what uh, what she should be. 
Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but there's 15 different kinds of women in the Bible. And you could go through them. Uh, we have been through them. Most of them are in Proverbs. In fact, they're all in Proverbs except two of them. And uh, there's 15 kinds of women that you'll find in the Bible. Uh, Proverbs 2 talks about a strange woman. Proverbs 6 talks about an evil woman. Proverbs 6 also talks about a whorish woman. Proverbs 9 talks about a foolish woman. We're in Proverbs chapter 11. It talks about a gracious woman. And uh, Proverbs chapter 11 talks about a, a, a faithful woman. Uh, Proverbs chapter 14 talks about a wise woman. And Proverbs 21 talks about a brawling woman. She's fun. Uh, Proverbs chapter 21 talks about an angry woman. She's really tough when she starts hanging out with a brawling woman. But anyway, <laughs> Proverbs 27 talks about a contentious woman. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30 talks about a hateful woman. And Proverbs chapter 31 talks, uh, 30 talks about adulterous woman again. And Proverbs chapter 31 talks about the virtuous woman. And then uh, 1 Kings 4 and Matthew chapter 15. These are, our, these are our last two women. And they're both called great women. And uh, they're not named. And they're not named because these two women... Uh, stand for the two types of women that find God's wife, Israel, and, of course, the body of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 15, she's a type of the church. and 2 Kings 4, she's a type of the nation of Israel. So you begin to see that from a practical standpoint, this woman here in Proverbs 11 is going to be the virtuous woman uh, that Proverbs chapter 31 talks about. The overall concept of Proverbs, if you don't have this outline in your Bible, you need to put it in. Here's the, Proverbs breaks down into three basic sections, and they're not hard. You want to understand the book of Proverbs, this is how you get it. Uh, chapter 1 through chapter 8, he goes through and he talks about uh, how we get wisdom, how we get understanding, how we get discernment. He'll go through time and time over and over again in the first eight chapters, and he begins to show us how we get those key things in our life. Then he moves into the second section with chapter 9, up to chapter 30. And in that section, he talks about how that the Proverbs, uh, uh, he go, starts going through them on an individual basis. That's what we're doing right now. And he shows you the positive and the negative from chapter 9 to chapter 30. So you got chapter 1 through chapter 8 tells you how to get it. Chapter 9 through chapter 30 shows you what they are. And then you get to chapter 31, shows you the end result. The end result is a virtuous woman. And the Bible says in Proverbs 31.10, who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. The storyline of Proverbs and Song of Solomon. Solomon's looking for a woman with virtue. He's got a thousand wives and he can't find one. Of course, he was looking in the wrong place. He was looking in the world. But he finally finds her in the book of Song of Solomon And uh, the Bible talks about Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1. It says that this woman is the song of songs. Of all the other love songs he wrote about all the other bimbos that he had in 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 his palace, this one was the song of songs. She was the virtuous woman. Bible says in Song of Solomon that she was a she was a pearl, a black pearl. Matthew chapter 13, verse 45 and 46 talks about akin the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now that's a prophecy concerning the church. And when Solomon finds this woman who's a virtuous woman, not only historically is it the woman that he was looking for, but in a doctrinal sense or a prophetic sense, it's a picture of you and me, the church. And so Proverbs takes on a complete new dimension in our lives. It shows us in the first eight chapters how to get what we want. It shows us the very meat and the heart of the subject in 9 verse 30. And then chapter 31 shows us the, uh, the, the end result. And it's an incredible concept. And of course you see the Song of Solomon, how it all goes together in the right place. And it's an incredible study to take. And in Matthew chapter 13, you see the pearl of great price. In, in Revelation chapter 20, that the new Jerusalem comes down. We're told that the new Jerusalem is the bode. It's the Christ church. It's where we live. It's everything that represents the church. It says it's got 12 gates, 12 tribes. Salvation is of the Jew. But on each one of those gates is a pearl, 
because that's the abode and the home and the church. You know, a pearl is not just a precious stone. I don't know if you know this or not, but a pearl is alive. A pearl is alive. A pearl is a living organism. You can take a diamond and cut it in half and have two diamonds. You can take a ruby, cut it in half and have two rubies. You can take a sapphire, cut it in half, have two sapphires. But when you take a pearl and cut it in half, both halves die. It's alive. And the church is, a, is not only just a precious stone, it's alive. So God calls it a pearl. You can't divide it. Can't divide it. You can't divide a pearl just like you can't divide me from Christ. Now, I want to see this woman in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 16, uh, with grace and honor, and how she is the woman of Proverbs 31, 10, who was virtuous in a picture of you and me, the body of Christ. And the key in both cases is the word virtue. Now, virtue is a great word in the Bible, and uh, most people don't know what that word means. They know it's a good thing, but they don't know really what it means. And the definitive passages in the Bible on virtue is found in two places. It's found in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. That's the first one we're going to go to. And then it's found in Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 30. That'll be the second one we go to. Now, in Luke chapter 6, verse 17, here's what he says. And it came down with them and stood, and he came down with them and stood in the plain, and the company of his disciples, and a great multitude of people came out of all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon which came to hear him to be healed in their diseases. And they were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him. Here it comes. For there went virtue out of him and healed them all. Now, Mark chapter 5, verse 25 says this. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of the physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered uh, uh, but rather grew worse. And she heard of Jesus when he, came, uh, uh, when he came in the press behind, touched his garment. For she said, If I may touch but his clothes, I shall be made whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that disease. Now here it comes. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? Now, most people don't know what virtue is. They know it's a good thing, as I said. But when you see this here, in both cases, virtue is something that went out of him, and he knew it when it did, and he knew when it left him. Now, biblically speaking, virtue uh, in our own lives is that spiritual character quality that we have in our inner spirit and our soul, that we have from a, a, a working relationship with Christ. And when you minister to people the Word of God, when you give them the verses you have memorized, when you give them uh, or lay out the examples uh, in the Bible, the types, or you sit down and they have an issue, or you disciple somebody and you, you put out what you know and you give out what you know, you go through a particular issue or you walk them through something in the Bible, that it's the virtue that you have put in you that's based on the Word of God that you got from your relationship with God that goes out of you and gives you the ability to minister to them. It will be the strength or the empower or encouraging other people. Virtue is you becoming one with the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and then giving what you have inside to other people. A Thursday night, we talked about how that, uh, you know, uh, through Bible study, and we go through all the questions. At the end of Thursday night, you go home and you're all filled up. At the end of Thursday night, I get home and I'm all wore out. You know why? I've just spent two hours putting out of me what God has put in me. Virtue is you becoming one with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, and when you give it to others, it becomes a healing medicine that helps heal uh, people's spiritual wounds or comforts them or teaches them or encourages them. Virtue, when it goes out of you, will tire you. It will wear you out. It will drain you so that you have to, but then, so you have to get refilled then on a continuous daily basis. The virtue that only comes from God. In the Bible, this is called the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit of God. There's two great doctrines on the Holy Spirit of God for you and for me. One is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. That happened the day you got saved. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God took up residency inside your soul. You were sealed under the day of redemption. That never leaves. 
but in your body, there's a daily filling of the Holy Spirit of God. When you get up in the morning, you get into your Bible or whatever you do, and you begin to prepare yourself, and you go through the day on what you put spiritually in your life. It's like the gas in the tank of your car. And you can start out on a trip, uh, and you can have a full tank of gas, but you can only go 400, 500 miles. you got to pull in and get some more gas. You can fill yourself up spiritually through Bible study and all the things that you learn. But when you sit down with somebody and you disciple them or you work with them or you give them what God has given you, it drains you. And you have to get your tanks refilled. Has nothing to do with the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, but rather the filling Holy Spirit of God. Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, And be not drunk with wine, where is in excess, but filled with the Spirit speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You get filled by being here on Sunday morning. You leave here filled up. You get filled up by Thursday night. You leave, your tanks are full. You get in your prayer groups, you get filled up. You do your own Bible study, you get filled up. You spend your time with God, he fills you up. You you get into your fellowship with him and other people, your prayer life. It gets your spiritual battle charged on a daily uh, process that when you put it out and you give virtue, the quality of God in your life that you got from him in the word, you put it out to others, you have to replace. Now, let me say this. Going to make a lot of friends today and going to make a lot of enemies. Women are especially good at this, or can be, because women have the natural ability that God designed them to bring forth life into the world, a child. And as that child grows up, that mother nurtures them, gives of herself to them, and in everything that she does in all that they do. And this is why you'll hear your wife say, when you, if you've got two or three kids, or in some cases, just one kid, boy, I am drained after being with these kids all day. They wear you out. They wear you out because they take it out of you. They wear it out because you're constantly giving to them. They're wearing you out because you're taking of your strength and you're constantly helping them, giving them, teaching them, correcting them, m- mentoring them, giving them all, and it wears you out and it drains you. A woman or a mother is wired by God to pour herself into her family. And if you look at Proverbs chapter uh, uh, 31, there's 14 things in that chapter from verse 10 on that a mother does with her kids. And every one of them requires them putting something out, putting something in. So for a saved woman who already has that natural ability, who is already... God, by God, to be nurturing and giving and pouring herself into her family. When she gets into the book and she gets the Word of God in her and she gets on fire and wants to serve the Lord, it'll be easier for her to do it than it will be for a man. Now, this is the importance of, of for all of us, getting the Word of God in your life in a, in a constant basis, uh, or you're going to run out of gas spiritually. That's why when you start to struggle... And you start to have problems. The reason why you start to have problems is because you're not renewing everything in your life and your problems are starting to overcome you. The first thing those people do is get farther away from the gas station. Listen, when that little red light comes on on your dashboard and you know you only got 30 miles left and you pass up a sign that says the next gas station, this is the last gas station for another 100 miles, how many foolish people would say, I can make it? You realize that you're almost out of gas. You know it. You can see it. Your red light is coming on. You just saw a sign that says, if you don't get gas here, the next one is 100 miles. Your odometer is telling you, you only got 20 miles left. You're a fool if you don't get gas. And you know what? In our spiritual world, when that little red light comes on and it's getting close to empty and you know you've got some issues and you better get your tanks filled up, you'll just pass right by that sign and die in the desert. That's the way it works. 
It's exactly the way it works. And that's why, that's why you, you have to see the importance of that. Now look at the last part of verse 16. And strong men retain riches. Now here's a great spiritual contrast that shows the fundamental difference between men and women. The woman gives out virtue, but the man wants to retain everything that he has. Fundamentally, you see it all the time. It's harder for a man to give out virtue. Most husbands, most fathers, it's harder for them to show compassion than it is for a mother. It's harder for them to show that they really care. I'm not saying that they don't. I've known some fathers that I believe really loved their families and cared for their families, but they had an innate inability to show it to them. They couldn't tell their kids they loved them. They couldn't tell their wife that how much they loved her. They couldn't, they couldn't display emotion or affection in any way. To them, doing that was kind of like almost being effeminate. You know, a real man doesn't do that. And that's the mindset we got today. But I want you to know, men, God gave you tear ducts in your eyes just like he did the eyes of your wife. And this is what he, he, looks, at, he looks at it totally different. And he goes around and he says, well, you know what? He says, I, I just, uh, he, he can't, he can't, when his wife struggles, he looks at it and says, well, come on, what's wrong with you? Why can't you just get up and keep on going? Don't let that bother you. That wouldn't bother me. Well, of course it wouldn't bother you. You're not a woman. You're a man. But she is more sensitive in those things, and because she is the author of life, she can has all that ability to give a man wants to hold on to it. So when it comes to love, a mom will just pour it all over the family, sometimes too much. When it comes to the dad, he just kind of, unless, you know, and, and I've had guys tell me this. You know, I've, I've sat down with husbands and wives for many, many years that, that struggle with this problem. And the guy will always say, well, you know what? I grew up in a family where, you know, uh, that uh, there wasn't a lot of love shown, and I grew up in a family where my father didn't show that. And I get all that. I understand that. And I'll let them go on for 5 or 10, 15 minutes. And when they're done, they think they've just accomplished something great. And then I just kick all four legs out and say, so what? The Bible says, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. All things become new. You may have been raised that way, but once you got saved, party's over. You now have the ability to be like Christ and Christ-like in everything that you do. But a woman has the internal makeup of naturally giving out love and nurturing and giving out virtue because she can produce life. A man can't produce life. So he's, he's wired differently. He's the strength. He's the structure. So it's harder for him sometimes. A man will, a man will really, in most cases, have to see this in his life and work toward a goal. He'll have to develop it. Uh, You know, if he's ever going to be effective in his family or in the ministry, he's going to have to realize that, hey, look, this is, it's different for me. I have to really work on this. I can't just say anymore, that's the way I am. You have to realize that that may be the way you are, but that's not the way God wants you to be. Now, this is, you see this all the time with, 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 with why pastors sometimes are so cold, so aloof, so indifferent. You know, don't let the people get around them in any way, shape, or form to have any part of them because they're that way. I knew a preacher one time. He hated people. He didn't want to talk to anybody. He didn't, he didn't want to work with anybody. He, everybody looked at, he looked at. All he wanted to do was get up on Sunday morning and lay out the Bible and then go back to his man cave in his office and just lock himself away and never have to deal with people. He put a whole staff of people around him, pastors, who dealt with all of the people. And all he did was just spend all day studying, doing what he wanted to do, step up in the pulpit, and then as soon as he was done, he was out of there. And there's a guy who, as far as I'm concerned, has no business being in the ministry. There's a guy who has lost any ability of reality with his people. He thinks he's like the Lord. He just comes down on Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments every Sunday and then goes back to heaven. But you see, for a woman, a relationship with Christ will always be easier than it will be with for a man. And that's just the way it is. I mean, if she's a good woman... 
she's naturally drawn to, to things like that. Do you ever notice that in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you ever notice in Luke chapter 23 and 24 that the Lord Jesus always had a little crowd of women always around him? They, wherever he went, they went. They ministered to him, did everything he needed to do. Got his car wars, filled it up with gas, did whatever needed to be done. And I'll tell you something else. You ever see this, the first coming of Christ? There was not one woman in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John who ever rejected him. There wasn't one woman anywhere in the Gospels that ever rejected him. Not one. Do you know why that is? Because Christ fundamentally is everything a woman wants in a man. He was compassionate. He was caring and nurturing. He was never too busy to listen. Let me tell you something. Mary and Martha, I love Mary. Martha would drive me up the wall. Martha has got a mouth like a top flap jap canned garbage lid. She's always never shuts her mouth. She always says the wrong thing at the right time. She's incredible. She's a, she's a busy body that's in everything. And there's not one time that Jesus, when she had something to say, as goofy as it was, he didn't stop and listen to her. That's why women were drawn to him. He was caring. He was nurturing. He was never too busy. He was godly. He never yelled at her. He never screamed at her. He never cussed her out. He never hit her. He never pushed her around. He was the rock in her stability. He set the standard of the principles. And every woman in the New Testament says, that's exactly what I want in a man. So at the first coming of Christ, there, 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 there wasn't a woman that rejected him. He was every woman's dream man. Every woman wants a man just like that. And I'll tell you what, ladies, when you look for a man, those are the things you look for in there. I've told you that before. It doesn't do any good, but I'm telling you. <laughs> that Bible told us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, after the fall, that the woman's desire was going to be to her husband. And Christ fulfilled that. But for a man, you see, his desire is the things that he retains. I saw in a, you know, in a hunting fishing magazine one time, I saw in the, they have a, believe it or not, some of them have a, uh, you want to find a male, you want to find a woman uh, in the back. And this guy had put an ad in there and he says, a real outdoor, real man looking for a woman. She must like to hunt. She must like to fish. She must be able to cook, keep a clean house. She must have a, a boat and she must have a dog. If you're interested, please send a picture of the boat and the dog. <laughs> That's a man. That's what he does. That's what we do. He likes to retain his possessions, his things, his emotions. And he has to work much harder than a woman does because he's the strength and she's the weaker vessel. But a woman in the New Testament, there wasn't one that rejected him. You know, I'll tell you this. I don't preach on this, but I'll say it right now since I'm here. You ever meet a woman who absolutely rejects Christ and wants nothing to do with him? You've met a bad woman. You've met a bad woman. I'm just telling you. Now, guys, you ain't going to like what I'm about to say. But if you want a true example of what you and I should be, and if you got a wife or a girlfriend, or today I suppose I should say a significant other <clears throat> who loves God and is godly and lives by the principles and won't compromise and is giving to others and loves you and loves people and prays and studies her Bible, that's the greatest example of what we as men need to be as the bride of Christ. And I hope some of you pride, silly pride won't let you keep you from getting that. Now, I know that now everybody has their struggles, and I know that I get it. I'm talking about in a pure biblical, here it is, the way. And I'm going to tell you something. There are many examples of that in the Bible. I mean, you go back there in Genesis with Sarah. What an example she is. She had her issues, 
but she became a, became a, a, a God blessed her with many nations. You got Rebecca, one of the greatest examples in the Bible. You got Rachel and Leah from the 12 tribes. You got Ruth and Naomi. Uh, you got Esther. You got Hannah, Samuel's mom. One of the greatest examples and studies in the Bible of how to train up and raise up a child. Incredible. You got the Shumanite woman who's called a great woman in 2 Kings 4. And then you got the woman in Matthew chapter 15, who is another great woman. You got Elizabeth. You got Mary. The list is endless. But it'll all show us by those examples of what me as a man has to work on, become part, and have a relationship with Christ. I'm going to tell you something. It doesn't come natural for us. We have to work at it. You have to get to the point where you really, really, really identify what you got to change and then you begin to be that. Look at verse 17. The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but that he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. Now, this is a great verse, and it's a great practical principle. Now, when, uh, when you show mercy to others, give them grace, then you have a good conscience with God, and uh, you don't do any man evil. You sleep good at night knowing that no matter what the situation is, you did what was right, you followed the principles, whatever the outcome is. When your goal in life as a Christian is simply to be a blessing to others, uh, we then become an encouragement to them. Tell them you appreciate them. Tell them how much that you love them. You love the unlovable and you love the lovable. I, I tell you, and our church does a good job of this, and I appreciate it, but I'm, I tell you, on Sunday morning, when you see, uh, you, you sometimes you had to break out of your little world. You know, you get your little guys over here, your little girls over here, and you're talking about this. You want to break out of that and just look around and see, one, the visitors that come in. Make sure that, that you had to fight in line to be able to shake their hand. Tell them how glad you are here. Bless them. Give them the blessing that you know that, hey, I'm glad I came here today. Look for them. Don't get into your little world and talk about this or talk about that and what you're going to do here and what you're going to do there and all tell your jokes and laugh. That's okay. But you know what? There comes a time when you've got to break out of that world and you've got to look around you that the people that are here. You can be more than a blessing to just one or two of your buddies or one or two of your girlfriends. You look around here at the people, just go over and tell them how much you appreciate them. Just put your arm around and say, hey, I really love And I know our church does a great job. We're the only church in the world that's like the Waltons. It takes us 45 minutes to say goodbye from any activity. I get that. I get that. I'll tell you something else. You know what I like about when we go to uh, at the uh, ball or softball? When we go to uh, uh, Jason Deli, one of the things I love about it is that we're all together in one place. And I love just going around from table to table to table and just looking at somebody, patting them on the back, telling them how much I love them, tell them how I appreciate them, go from this table and laugh and listen to you guys and put my arms around you and just talk and then go to the next table over here. You got to do that sometime. Now, I got to warn you, Shoney's, I get the mindset that it's all ours. A couple of weeks ago, I was walking around and I'm up here and I'm rubbing his people's back and I say, I'm so glad you're here. And I looked up and it wasn't my people. He looked at me really weird. I think she liked it, but I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but, but I'm thinking, but you got to do that sometime. You just got to go around and tell somebody that they're special. Tell somebody that you love them. Get out of that little mold mindset of your little people group. When your goal becomes that you want to be a blessing to other people, then you will be a blessing to other people. You don't want to keep that to yourself. You want to be able to share that. You want to be able to give that to others. Now, the Bible says the merciful doeth good to his own soul. The greatest example of that, I think, in the Bible is the story of Joseph. Back there in Genesis 37 to chapter 50. And, you know, it's no wonder that we talked about this last Thursday night. It's no wonder that in the Bible, Joseph is the greatest uh, type of, of Christ uh, in all of the scriptures. I mean, it's incredible. He is number one when it comes to the, being the types of Christ in the Bible. Uh, he, he, he had a father who loved him so much because he was so special, he gave him a coat of many colors. That's very significant in the Bible. His brothers, the brethren, hated him because he had the favor of the father, just like Israel with Christ. Joseph sees and tells prophecy, just like Christ did, and he gets hated even more. 
They come a plot together to kill him. And finally they sell him for, to the Midianites for 20 pieces of silver. Christ was sold for 30 pieces of silver. And the difference between that is in Leviticus 27, verse 5, with the age that they have. But they sell. You know, in, in the Old Testament, Judah says, let's sell him. In the New Testament, Judah says, let's sell him. You know those are the same two names in the Bible? Joshua, Joseph is hated without a cause, just like Christ. And when they wanted to pull off the deception, oh, I can't miss this. They said, that's how we're going to do it. Well, let's pull him out of that hole, sell him to the Midianites. We'll go get a goat. We'll kill the goat. We'll rip his coat up. We'll put it in the blood, and we'll take it back, and we'll tell Daddy that some wild beast got him. And I look at that and thought to myself, wow, isn't that instructive? Remember way back when Daddy wanted to deceive Esau? You know what he did? He put on a goat skin. And he pretended that he was somebody that he wasn't. So when he gets deceived, his own boys take a goat skin and deceive him just like he deceived his brother. I wonder where they learned that. And the scary part is they weren't even born when he did that. Oh, your kids pick it up. You wonder where they get it? (laughs) Look in the mirror. Joseph is a type of Christ. He gets rejected by his brethren the first time, first coming of Christ. And then he's accepted by his brethren the second time, second coming of Christ. How much time is in between? Seven years. Tribulation period. Oh, he's in a great study. But you know what? Because he's a great type of Christ, he never held a grudge. Not even when he came to power, he was made number two in the kingdom. Not when he was on top. And now his brethren didn't know who he was because many years had passed, but now they had to come to him for their own food. And boy, there's a great principle. See how it works? There's how it works. They'll curse you, but at the end, they'll slander you, they'll lie about you, but you'll always come out better than they will when it's all said and done. He could have had them killed. He could have had them tortured. He could have sold them into slavery. He could have put them on a rock and burned their eyeballs out, but no. He showed them mercy, just like God showed mercy to me and you, just like we need to show mercy to other people. And out of that story comes one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible to show people mercy and, to come, and how it comes back to your own, your own soul as a blessing and your own flesh. Joseph knew and understood the great principle of Genesis chapter 45, verse 5 where he says that God had sent him on to the slavery of Egypt to pave the way for God's people. What incredible insight. What perspective. What ability to see past your circumstances and see what God is really doing. He realized that his going to slavery, he says it, his going to slavery and him paying the price of slavery was for the salvation of his people. You see, that's exactly what we need to be when we give up our own lives and give up what we want so others may get the salvation, just like he did. Then he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, probably one of the greatest statements in all the Bible, when he looks at his brethren and he finally confronts them and they're all tore up and upset, he pats them on the back, puts his arms around him, and he says, hey, don't be upset. But as for you, you thought evil against me. Yes, you did. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Wow, what perspective. Now there's the ability to look past what somebody is doing to you when you don't deserve it, but you just keep being what God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to be, showing grace, showing mercy, and you'll see who comes out on the end. Understanding that they meant it for your evil, but God always means it for your good. His whole life, he blessed people by showing them mercy, and it was good to his own flesh. God blessed him for it, and he became number two in the kingdom. Now, that's probably one of the greatest examples in the Bible of being Christ-like. Now, the second part of that verse, verse 17, but he that is cruel trouble his own flesh. Listen, when we don't do right unto people, At some point, it's always going to come back and bite you. I think the saying is, what goes around comes around. I think the saying is, every dog has his day. I think the saying is, don't worry, I don't get mad, I get even. Hey, when your goal in life is to hurt somebody instead of being a blessing to them, 
it will eventually come back on you, your family, your kids, or your flesh. Last week, we saw the story of a tailbearer, a wicked person who tries to hurt and destroy people with their mouth and what they say. And in every case I've ever seen, God blesses the one who gets the abuse and curses the one who tries to hurt the others, and it never fails. And you just got to pay attention and look around you and see what happened. God blessed Joseph. His brothers went through a famine. And there's many of people, God's people, who are going through a real famine spiritually today because of what they did to God's people who were trying to do what's right all across this world. Some of God's people are just cruel to other Christians. Hey, growing up in churches, I've seen, I've seen deacons. I've seen deacons in small churches who have had the power for 20, 30 years be some of the most mean-spirited people you ever saw in your life. I ain't kidding you. I, I've, seen, I've, seen them, I've seen people, uh, deacons that have some kind of power that they go around when there was young kids that they would see. They'd go up there, you know, and, and that kid might be a little wandering or something like that, and that guy would go up to that kid and try to say hi to him, but tell him he'd take that kid right there and pinch his shoulder right there, the tears come in that kid's eye, and then pretend he was just kidding. Mean-spirited, man, mean-spirited. I've seen them. Hey, I've seen some, I've seen some situa- churches where the women ran the church and the pastors and the men were a bunch of wimps and they've become some of the cruelest people you'll ever meet. You ever, you'll, you, they, they never grow. They can't get anybody there. One experience is all that you need to know that this is not where I need to be. And I'll tell you what, it's all because of the cruel, uh, causes trouble for their own flesh. Now in the Bible, the greatest example of this will be also in the book or in the book of Exodus will be Pharaoh chapter 1 through chapter 12 how cruel and wicked he was to God's people i told you thursday night there's 18 types of the antichrist in the bible he's one of them and his dealings with God's people was a great example of this proverbs 11 verse 17 he that is cruel trouble his own flesh he he was intimidated by uh, the children of israel He's afraid that they would rise up and take his power. Now, that's a great principle because the more you learn the Bible, and you better get this down, the more you learn the Bible and the closer you get to God, the more intimidating you're going to be to some people. And that was Pharaoh. He puts them under slavery and hard bondage, making bricks to build his empire. And it's a, he puts them under a, a, this terrible burden. And in chapter 5, uh, you know, he, he, he gets them to make bricks and they have to have straw to make the bricks. And he's been having the straw delivered because they had a certain number of bricks they need to make a tally, a toll every day. And he just sits there being cruel and he says, you know what I'm going to do? He says, I'm not going to deliver it to them. They're going to have to not only make the bricks, they're going to have to get down and get the straw themselves. And not only are they going to have to take half their crew to get this, they still have to make the same amount of bricks or they're going to be in trouble. Boy, I've seen that. Oh, yes, I have. That's by design, putting people in a situation that you know they can't meet and they fail, and then you persecute them for their failure when you set them up for the failure in the first place. I've seen preachers do that to their people. I've seen a lot. I've seen other Christians do it to younger Christians. Years ago, I was on a pastoral staff, really a nobody back then, but I believed the King James Bible had a Sunday school cast that believed it, but nobody else in the church, pastor didn't believe it. I had great success. Many of you older folks were back with me back then. And you know, uh, you know, we had great success, but we took a stand on the Bible, and we were good. One day in a staff meeting, the head pastor just went off. Somebody was going around the church, putting these little round circles that said, the King James Bible, the Bible God loves and the devil hates, and putting them all over the church. He thought it was me. Oh, one of my people. He ripped me a new one right in front of everybody and told me that I better find out who this was and I better get it stopped. He said, I'll let you do this and do that, but that's going way too far. 
Well, I'll tell you what. I said, I went to my people and I said, hey, who's doing this? I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm getting clobbered on this. And nobody, nobody, nobody said, well, we ain't doing it. We ain't doing it. They kept showing up. Oh, I kept getting reamed. I mean, he just let me have it. And I, it kept showing up, kept showing up. Everybody, they'd be in places. And I, so one afternoon, <clears throat> I was getting ready to go home. And I had a Jeep back then, and, and it was parked out in front of the church. And when I got out, and right on the, right on the steering wheel was, was, a, was one of those things. Now I'm thinking, come on. And I'm looking all around, and I'm here, and I'm just beside myself. And I just, I just I'm so frustrated. I'm so mad. I said, I, I, my kid's a kid is doing this. I'm going to kill him. I said, I don't, I'm going to get this. Is, and I'm just really angry. And about that time... Remember this, Jim? Jim Bruce came around the corner, was in the church. Jim Bruce has been with me for about 40 years, Jim, something like that, probably. Now, Jim is the kind of guy, you got to be careful what you tell him to do. Because <laughs> he will do exactly what you say. I used to take Jimmy with me back in the high school camp. Remember, Jimmy? Remember when Steve Brackeen was only 12 years old? Remember that days? One night, Jimmy was my Jimmy was my go-to guy. I always I, I could trust get Jimmy to do anything. And one night I said I said to Jimmy I said I was about ten o'clock eleven o'clock I said Jimmy I said I'm going to bed I said you you know I was just giving him something to being nice to him I said you keep an eye on the camp tonight. I get up the next morning he never went to bed he walked around <laughs> that camp all night long. I wish everybody in this church Jimmy took what I say as good as you did. I saw Jimmy, and I'm frustrated. And I said to Jimmy, I said, Jimmy, I said, without, I didn't want to give too much away, but I said, Jimmy, I said, have you seen anybody around my Jeep? Because I had only been there about an hour, so it wasn't there when I got there. I said, have you seen anybody around my Jeep at all? I said, you've been here for a while? I said, yeah, I've been here for a while. I said, have you seen anybody? He said, no. He said, the only one I saw was the pastor went out to your Jeep. <laughs> that pastor was putting them around the church and blaming me for it. Now, I know what the verse says. <laughs> I didn't get mad, but I did get even. <laughs> Here was a big guy down at the BBF Fellowship. He was really up high. He's always going down there for meetings. And they all have their big deal, all the big guys. And they all had their big cars, Lincolns, Cadillac, you know how that was. I found me a bumper sticker about that big. Had a skull on it with a snake coming down through the top of the skull, out the eyeball, and back in the mouth and out the other eye. It's a beautiful thing. I got a, got a tattoo of it right here on my upper arm. And over here on the bumper sticker it says, kill them all, let God sort them out. <laughs> And one night, I heard the heavens open. God spoke to me in the clearest tone I've ever heard and says, go join yourself to that man's chariot. Especially the bumper. I took that thing put crazy glue, because he didn't know that I knew that he was the one doing it. I put crazy glue on that thing on one side that you'd never would come off. It was already sticky. And I put that thing right on his bumper, and I smoothed that thing over, and I, I heard the story later. He went down to Springfield, and they all were down there in their big meeting, and they're all walking out, praising God, coming to their cars, and they're all walking over to his car, and they looked down at his prestigious, beautiful pearl-colored Lincoln with a bumper sticker on it that said, kill them all, let God show them all. I don't know whatever happened to that car. It probably went to a junk pile someplace and probably is down there along Truth somewhere or Truman Road on one of those big stacks of old cars, but I know how you'll be able to find it. It'll be the only one with that bumper sticker still on its bumper because it was not coming off. He was doing that to me. I see it a lot. 
and Pharaoh and everything he does to them. For 430 years of it, tens of thousands died. Hundreds of thousands met their death under his brutality and and cruelty. But as always, God takes his cruelty and makes them a great nation. And at some point, he delivers them and Pharaoh gets killed. In other words, God blesses Israel and he curses Pharaoh. Let my people go. And when he won't, the plagues of the Lord on his land, the killing of his firstborn, and the verse says, he that is cruel trouble his own flesh. Boy, I'll tell you what, there wasn't a truer statement ever made. Now look at verse 18. It says, the wicked worketh the deceitful work, but him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. Now, we have commented at great length on the deceitful work of the wicked, and we'll not comment it any further. You all have had it many, many times. We've been through it over and over again. But I want to focus on the second part here in closing. The second part of that verse is a great one. To him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. Now, spiritually speaking here, uh, the context here is a man who sows the word of God, spiritual things. Sows, verse 16, mercy and grace. Showing the good things that build people up and never tear them down. And in these verses, there are three things that a child of God who follows the Bible and its principles can be absolutely sure of. Now, we live in a world where there's nothing sure. We live in a world where if there's any reason that would drive you to the Bible uh, after this morning, it would simply be that in a world of nothing sure, you can have three sure things that you can absolutely bet everything you got on and it'll come to pass. Now, the first thing is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 and 19, and that is a sure word of prophecy. God gave you a book you can be sure of. When you come down to that, it says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when he came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard that we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. He said, we were on a mountain and we heard the very voice of God. This is Matthew chapter 17, Mount Transfiguration. We heard the very voice of God and he said, now today we have a more sure word of prophecy. And you want to ask yourself the question, more sure than what? And the answer will be more sure than the very voice of God. God ain't going to come down and speak to you audibly anymore. He's given you a sure word. Now I believe what I believe about the Bible I could go through manuscript evidence. I could spend the next 20 hours boring you to death with it. I believe what I believe about the Bible because there are two verses in the Bible. I don't think I've ever given them to you, so I'll give them to you now. First one's in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. Second one's in Psalms 138, verses 1 and 2. Now, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5 says this. These are the two verses. This is why I believe what I believe. Then the Levites, Jeshima, and Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Shebaniah, Hojaniah, Shepaniah, and Pethaniah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. All right, in Christianity, we got the blessings of God right here. We got the praise of God right here. We're going to have a praise service. We're going to bless the Lord. And over above both of them is his name. His name is put above all blessing and praise. You got that? Now, Psalms 138. I mean, we pray in the name of Jesus. We preach in the name of Jesus. We, we, uh, we live in the name of Jesus. We, uh, we, we do all those things. Now look at Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2. I will praise thee with thy whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. Here it comes. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. You got blessings here, praise here, Jesus here, and then he puts that book over his own son's name. Oh, that's why I take it the way I take it. Now, once you have a sure book, an absolute standard, then you can know two things for sure. First thing you can know for sure is you're saved. Verse John 5, verse 11, 12, 13 says, These things have I written unto you to believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Titus 1, 2 says, And hope eternal life which God who promised cannot lie before the foundation of the world. And the second thing you can know for sure is you can know for sure what exactly God wants you to do. No question about it. And you know, those are the two biggest dilemmas that every Christian has. The lower-end Christians, they're always worried they're really saved or not. The upper-end Christians, they're always worried, am I doing the right thing for God? 
Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. You can know absolutely what God wants you to do with your life, but it has to come from a sure book. The diligence of so many, uh, the dilemma of so many Christians, and yet the last verse, it's so easy. And note the last part of that verse. If you do these things, you shall never fall. The last part of thing, uh, we talked about it last week. God will deliver you and keep you from the wicked. The diligence that he's talking about is he's talking about staying in the sure book and you'll get the sure ministry and God will, will always make sure you're doing exactly what he wants you to do. You don't have to wonder one second. Am I doing the right thing or what God has saved me for if you follow the sure book because it'll give you a sure calling? And the third thing, the third thing that you can be sure of right there in Proverbs eleven eighteen, to him that showeth righteousness shall be a sure reward. That verse is the one of the greatest promises in the Bible for every child of God that in any age and dispensation. There's absolutely no reason on earth for a Christian not to come out at the good judgment seat of Christ in good shape. He has everything he needs to make it. He has a sure word. He has all the principles, all the examples, all the types, all the stories, all the illustrations, all the promises, all the warnings, all the admonitions, all the rebukes. He has every tool at God's disposal is given to us to succeed. To succeed, once a sure book, to a sure calling. And man, woman, you get that thing figured out and you get a sure calling, you're going to get a sure reward. Somebody asked me one time, what's the definition of success in the Bible? It's real simple. Success in the Bible is simply a man or woman who finds out what God wants them to do and then spends the rest of their life doing it. That's success. Plain and simple. A sure reward. And I've told you many times, life is never complicated or confusing. It's us who make it complicated and confusing. It just boils down to some very basic things. And in these things, life is in its simplicity of God and His plan for all of us. Simply getting to the point where we follow the principles out of a sure book. The sure book will always give us a sure calling, and a sure calling based on a sure book will always give us the sure reward. It's just that simple. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. Thank You for the book of Proverbs, for its truth, for its